Hello and welcome to the Art of Conversation, where interesting people from Vassar's campus come to share their stories. I'm your new host, Alex Barnard, audio editor for The Mist. Today we have a very special guest, but before we dive into the interview, I'd just like to give a quick shout out to Mac, the original host and creator of this show, and all my friends from The Misc who graduated this semester. From me and from everyone else at The Misc, you will be missed, and we wish you all the very best going forward. Now on with the show. My guest today is the one and only Jackson Lewis. Vassar students and fans of the band would recognize him as the incredibly talented and energetic guitarist from Spud Cannon, Vassar's very own five-piece New Wave Revival and indie group. To date, Spud Cannon have released two studio albums and one live album and played countless gigs both at Vassar's campus and at venues around the country. And if you don't know Spud Cannon, you need to give them a listen because they are incredible. Jackson, thanks for coming on the show, man. Oh, thank you. That was... Uh... That was beyond flattering. <laughs> I don't think anyone would <laughs> call me any of those things except for you. So thank you for making me look real good. As someone who also plays guitar, there seems to be a lot of, or really not a lot of new guitarists that people sort of look up to as guitar heroes, especially in mainstream music. You know, we don't really have like a an Eddie Van Halen figure or somebody like that that new guitarists can look up to. And so I guess my first question is who influenced you to pick up the guitar in the first place? Was there somebody like the classic rock guitarist or was it somebody maybe more underground that people maybe not have heard too much of? Well, actually, yeah, it's funny. I was talking to someone about this recently, but I mean, the the reason I actually picked up the guitar was when my dad always played very recreationally. And when I was about 12, he, he actually like forced me to play one night. It was not like I picked it up out of my own fortune. He said, come here. And I said, no, I don't want it. And he said, no, come here. And he forced me to play like an A chord. And I think it was like an E chord, A and E chord. That was it. But after that, I remember, because I was into music, Johnny Marr from the Smiths was my, he was my, he was Hendrix to me. I had a poster of him in my bedroom right above my bed. Actually, not above my bed, on my closet door, which was like in front of my bed. So I'd stare looking at just that picture of him. And I just thought he was untouchable. I loved the fact that he didn't really solo, but his songs were so hard that it was like, you know what I mean? At the time, I just thought like I'd never, ever be able to play this charming man or any of those songs. So he was the one that to me was my guitar god. So when you picked up the guitar, was the was the goal always to be in a band or was this something that when you got to Vassar, were you like, this could be something that I really think would be fun to do? Well, this is actually a really interesting part of it because I, I feel like in the interviews that we have done that this actually doesn't quite get covered. I think on day two of playing guitar with two chords, I tried to write a song. You know what I mean? So and I remember distinctly, like on day two, I didn't know that guitar pedals even existed. But I remember there was one button on like the tiny practice amp my dad had that would engage the distortion. And I remember I wrote a song with a chorus and I was like, but I want the chorus to be distorted so I'd reach my hand press the button. And I'd be like, I don't know how they do that live or whatever, you know? But no, I always wanted to start a band. I tried super hard to start a band even two years after playing guitar or something with some of my friends. Like none of us could play. 
and it never quite really came together. And then when I was a junior in high school, I started playing in my first real band. It was five of us. And it's really embarrassing to say now what the genre was. Oh my god. Because it oh. was kind of it was kind of rap rock in a in a, in a way. No. <laughs> kind of un, unforgivable. We had some we had I mean, there was one song that was definitely rap rocky and we did like a rage against the machine cover and some other stuff. Some other stuff was kind of cool, but we we were not very good. I would never say that. But that was the first that was the first time like I started gigging, you know what I mean, like locally kind of vibe and we'd practice and write songs and we did like two EPs and stuff. And it was a great experience of learning the dynamics of playing in a band. I mean, there were, it was a five piece, it was another five piece, all dudes complete democracy which was actually hell that sounds like it's a good thing really yeah that that would be tough yeah yeah you can never get decisions across and i remember it kind of crashed and burned for a lot of reasons like right before i mean we all broke up because we were all going to college but it was like kind of crashing and burning right before that and i remember just thinking distinctly i'm over bands after that like I, I remember going to college and said I'm I'm like done with playing in bands because I was so frustrated from because I really did I mean I put a lot of time into that band it was not like casual band we all took it pretty seriously but then I got to college wasn't that interested in it most people don't remember that I played in a really bad two piece my freshman year at Vassar. That was like poor man's black keys. It was me and um, Max uh, Cordero, who was a senior when I was a freshman. And he just, he could barely drum either. Like we met on Facebook. He just started taking drum lessons. I mean, he could like barely play. Even he'd be like, dude, I suck. And we both sucked. And it was horrible. And we actually did play in Battle of the Bands. And we didn't even place. It was, we lost to a DJ. You know, oh, there no. weren't even that, that many bands sucked. that year. It was like bad, embarrassing. <laughs> and I remember too, it was like, we played so bad that like I came off and no one was like, good job. That was good. People were like, wow, um, I didn't know you were into that kind of music. Was what said. And I was like, you know, that's bad. Um, but to round it out, what ended up happening in a really funny way was, and I was over bands at that point. Like the only reason I was playing with Max, we were not taking it seriously. It was just like a totally for fun. Right. And I was really into, I thought I was going to go into scoring because I always loved, I always, I mean, I always wanted to do music and I loved writing music. And I started, um, I took a scoring class when I was my senior year of high school and I really enjoyed it. And then when I came to college, I was like, there's money in this. I'm kind of over the band thing. I just want to do scoring. So I started scoring. I scored some student shorts at Vassar and some other short films too, like outside of Vassar, um, some indie ones. But what I realized after is that I really did not, you know, no offense to directors, but a lot of them don't know what they want, which also would drive me crazy. Like you'd have people who'd be like, can you do something like the theme to Stranger Things? Okay. And then you give them that and they'll be like, you know what? We change our mind. We want jazz. You know what I mean? Like literally that happened. Yeah, once, and it was like, and it became too frustrating. And I also went down a whole rabbit hole path with that. 
but to kind of spin it out to come around where Spud comes in, the only internship I ever got in college was after my freshman year. And I interned for this guy, Jason Hill, who was in a band called Louis the 14th in the 2000s that was on Atlantic. They were like in that classic rock revival kind yeah, of. Yeah, that was so like, huge back then. But I remember the person who, shout out to Sion, who helped me get this internship. And she was like, he was in this band. He's super cool. He's scoring that show, Mine Hunters, on Netflix. This was before it came out. Um, this okay. was like two years before it came out. And basically, I just, I fell in love. I really loved his band. And then I went and met him. And remember, I was going into this to try to learn about scoring. That's not really what happened. Because he had never scored anything in his life. He solely got this job because people liked, the, the director liked his records from his band. I spent, I mean, I was with him from 10 a.m. to midnight every day, just me and him at his house, in his home studio. I yeah. mean, and he got me back in to playing in bands, man, and reinvigorated me, like gave me a fire because half the time we wouldn't even talk about scoring or anything. We'd just talk about his time playing in a band. One of the best moments of my life was like, he threw a party at his house at the end of the summer that I was technically working at. And he'd do these like jam things at parties he threw where he'd try to record the jams. So I set up the whole thing for recording or whatever. And then he walked in, I'm like, it's ready. And I handed him, you know, he's like, I want to play bass, hand me the bass guitar. So I handed him the bass guitar and the jet drummer goes on the drums. And then Jason looked at me and, and he goes, well, aren't you going to pick up the guitar or whatever? So then I no ended up jamming with the drummer from Jet and um, and Jason, just in a three-piece. And then the whole party came and, and was just watching. And that was one of, I will never forget that. And I didn't have a pick and my hands started bleeding because I was like chugging at it so hard. And um, I don't, I didn't even care. I was like, it hurts, but like, when is this going to happen again? And my blood is still on his guitar. He doesn't know this, so <laughs> I hope he doesn't listen to this, but it is still on his guitar. The times I've been back there. <laughs> that kind of brings me to how Spud Cannon formed. Were you guys all friends before you started the band or were you just five random people that came together and were just like, let's make a band? We were complete strangers absolute strangers so what happened was i obviously had come off this summer there was like a fire under my butt to like go and start and do a band for real have you seen the movie school of rock i'm sure yeah yes yeah yeah, yeah. and i mean i always compare it to that movie when jack black is trying to put a band together after he gets kicked out because oh. That's what it was. I mean, I didn't have, like, I didn't know anybody that I wanted to be in it. I just was looking around and I knew the first thing I needed was the drummer. And the thing I learned from Jason and also from my high school band, which didn't have a great drummer, that you can't have a great band without a really good drummer. Great bands are, in my opinion, and I, other people say this too, but great bands, in my opinion, are a great singer and a great drummer. The guitar player, bass player, it doesn't really matter that much. And like the kind of comparison I always use is imagine John Bonham 
playing with an eight-year-old on guitar. Still going to sound oh, yeah. pretty good, but it's, like it's Eric, awesome. Eric Clapton with an eight-year-old on drums is going to sound pretty crafty. You know what I mean? Even if it's Clapton. But I came in and I saw Sam Sias, who I didn't know, but he was definitely stuck out like a sore freaking thumb, I remember, when he came in. Because he had hair down to here. He'd always wear classic rock t-shirts and he'd wear aviators and jeans. And I remember he was like a unicorn. I'd like see him around and then I'd question myself if even <laughs> I saw that person. <laughs> but I remember one day I just saw him in the dining hall in the D's and he was standing near the plates. And I, and I just, I said, you know what? what? What do I have to lose? I'm going up to him. And I went up to him. And I didn't even say hello. And the true story, I know because we've done interviews and we always say this, but it is, it is so the truth. The first thing I said to him was, do you just dress like that or do you really play the drums? Or no, I said, I, actually, no, I take that back. I said, do you play, do you play the drums? It was the first thing I didn't say hello. I just <laughs> said, do you play the drums? And then he looked up to me and he goes, excuse me, who are you? And then I said, do you just dress like that or do you actually play the drums? <laughs> and then he was insulted. I mean, he was definitely insulted. He went, he looked, and he took like two seconds and he goes, um, what? Uh, no, I play the drums. Yeah, I play the drums. <laughs> and then I was like, well, we should jam. And he was like, okay. And then I was like, we should jam tomorrow. <laughs> and he was like, okay, uh, I'll meet you tomorrow, dude, whatever. And then the next day I met him. And we said we were meeting somewhere at the quad. And I knew someone had a drum set in the basement of what has that basement? Lathrop? It's, basement? Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's Lathrop. And I remember I, I, I took Sam and I met Sam. And I remember he said, yeah, man, I'm down to jam, but I don't have any sticks. And I went, oh, but you know what? I had this feeling about him. I don't know why. Maybe it was because I wanted to. It was like blind optimism. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I went and I called Max Cordero, who had graduated, but I had played in that two-piece with. Um, but he was doing a post-back, and I said, you got to give me your drumsticks. You know, Because like, I knew he wasn't <laughs> drumming anymore. So I met him immediately. He gives me the drumsticks. I go to Sam. I go, here's your drumsticks. Now we're going to go play. Just me and him. And I remember he's being super like, you know, oh, I haven't played in a year. Oh, I, I don't know. And I just could tell he was kind of BSing. And the first thing he tears into is Rock and Roll by Led Zeppelin. Oh, man. And it was so, so good. It was seriously the best drumming I had heard, like, played with somebody. And I just remember, and also, like, I still stand by the fact, like, we've had three different drummers, all I love very dearly, all great. Like, we've been blessed with unbelievable drummers. But Sam... Maybe not the technically the best, but he, I still stand by, he has the best pocket of anybody I have ever played with. His pocket is unbelievable. So I remember after him, after we did that, we actually just, me and him, started jamming together. And I think it was two weeks where me and him were just started jamming together and we were trying to do like really bad classic rock revival stuff. 
because I wanted to do, that's the other thing I feel like a lot of people don't realize is I wanted to do a classic rock revival band like Wolf Mother Jet. That's like what, because I was coming off that and I was like, I want to do a band like he had it because, you know, whatever. But it sounded terrible. It was horrible. Nothing was clicking. It was sounding really kitschy and it was bad. And then I remember to get Lucy, what I did was I just literally did, I printed out on a white sheet of paper, bass player wanted, and I put my phone number in it, on it, just like Jack Black in freaking School of Rock. And I put it around, and I remember distinctly, just like in School of Rock, I, I was putting them up all over campus, and there were kids in front of me that were walking and saw a poster and didn't realize I was the one putting them up. And they were like, <laughs> one guy said to his friend, <laughs> Bass player wanted. What a joke. Who would want to do that? It was exactly like School of Rock and I'm standing there with like my pack of papers and I felt like Jack Black, you know? But then she was the first person to respond to that to that call. She was the first person. And I remember like I kind of looked her up on Facebook and it said she was from London. And I was like, oh, that's cool. You know what I mean? Or whatever, like English yeah. bass player. And... um and then she came, we met her. Um, I remember she came. She didn't have a bass. She said this a bunch of times. She played upright in the orchestra, but she actually did not own an electric bass. Right. And she came just to a jam to me, to me and Sam. And I remember I was really nervous. Like I wanted to like get her to like play with us or whatever. And she said, I'm going to buy one in two weeks. I'm going to buy an electric bass because I've always wanted to kind of play in it. She hadn't played in the band. She'd right. always played in orchestra, but she hadn't played in a rock band, and she always wanted to. And I'm going to go buy an electric bass, which she did. She went and she bought an electric bass, and she showed up. <laughs> and I remember she was very clear, and she said, listen, just write tabs for me. And the very funny thing was the first day she came into practice, I was like having writer's block, like I think leading up to that. like couldn't write anything, mm-hmm. whatever. And I was walking with this girl I went out with sophomore year, and, and I remember I was telling her, like, I just, it's not fun anymore. Like, I'm suffering. I can't write. And she was like, dude, you need to chillax and <laughs> just have fun with it. And don't take it so seriously. Who cares? And that was an eye-opening thing because I wasn't having fun. And I remember, like, because we were taking a walk when, we sh- when she said that. And then she had to go do something. So I took a walk. And I was sitting on a bench by Sunset Lake. Mm-hmm. And, like, a beam the song Midnight plopped into my head. Wow. It just plopped in, like, out of nowhere. And it wasn't stylistically, like, anything I had conceptualized doing. And then I ran to a piano, and I tried to, like, figure out what I was doing. And the funny (laughs) thing is that's why the guitar, some of it's kind of like a piano in the weird way it's played, because it's very, like, Boom, bam, boom, bam, boom, da, 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 da. Because I was playing right. the piano like, dun, tan, dun, tan, dun, tan, dun, 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 you know? Like, kind of like how you'd be strumming or something yeah, like that. Yeah, so I'd be like picking bass note, bottom, bass note, bottom, yeah. bass note, bottom, like really fast. And then, and then when Lucy came the next day, that was the song we tried. And um, I like wrote a, a tab or whatever. And then we were in. And then we had, I think, two weeks of practices where it was us three. And then I went to an acapella concert because I was looking for a singer. And it was one of those ones where it was a fest where they had a bunch of the acapella groups. And uh, Meg was singing in one of them. And I literally just remember thinking, not necessarily like, wow, like 
you know, what? because I wasn't taking things, I was taking things seriously, but not that seriously. It wasn't like I had to find, you know, Robert Plant or whatever. And I hadn't, and I hadn't decided, like, I wasn't like premeditated. Oh, I want to go singer. Or, oh, it should be a guy singer. I just was like, whoever seemed to have like a cool voice mm-hmm. and was at this acapella thing. And honestly, right. at this acapella thing, I was half paying attention. I came in late. Her group came up. And I just remember she took a solo and I remember that girl's voice is really weird. That's, that's what I thought. I was like, that girl has a really weird voice. It's and I was just- Very unique, yeah. Yeah, definitely unique. And I was like, I was just raring to get out of there. So she comes off and I was like, hey, you want to play in the band? And she was like, oh yeah, sure, whatever. You know? And I was like, next Thursday, meet us. And then she came. And then the story of Ari coming in was- Lucy came to me and was like, I have a friend. Um, her name's Ariana. I think she could help us with the lyrics. And she also plays piano. And she had no interest in actually playing in the band. This has been exposed later. But she <laughs> just had a crush on Sam at the time and didn't know what? him that well. And she just wanted an excuse to come talk to him. But me at the time, I thought like there was genuinely, I was like, oh, great. I wanted a piano player. This is all working out, you know? Right. There's definitely uh-huh. no ulterior motive. Yeah. <laughs> no ulterior motive. And I remember like I looked up on Facebook, like after Lucy was like, my friend Ariana, I like looked up all the possible Arianas and I was like, please make it be the like punk rock girl who I've seen like walking around campus, you know, because she used to wear all the punk rock t-shirts and the chain. Right. I mean, she still does in, in some ways, but yeah, when she showed up, I was like, oh, thank God. Yeah. And then she <laughs> stayed. I mean, like, you know, I was like, you play this, please play this or whatever. And then, you know, the rest yeah. is history. <laughs> real ragtag team and you guys you know you guys have come out with some amazing music one thing we we have to talk about mm-hmm. you guys are really famous for your presence at Vassar and I think you might know where I'm going with this mm-hmm. with your uh with your ad campaigns yeah uh yeah, yeah. and all the pranks that are sort of involved in that what was the decision process to say we're gonna spray paint the quad or something like that well this is funny because this is another thing that actually I learned from Jason. This guy really gave me a blueprint for everything. Rock and, and Roll 101. Rock and Roll 101. It was literally like Rock and Roll 101. And he's still, I mean, he is still, he's always been my mentor and I still text him. I mean, I still send him like mixes of stuff. I, I get his awesome. advice on everything. But he had told me a story of his band before Louis when he was in San Diego and his point was, you just got to hustle your butt off. And what he did was he made these posters because the internet wasn't, this was like early 90s, internet, you know, wasn't, wasn't as prevalent back then. So you couldn't back check things necessarily. So he made these posters that said, I think his band was called Convoy. And it was a poster for the Convoy show. And he put on it in big quotes, the hottest thing out of California since the skateboard, Rolling Stone magazine. Rolling Stone magazine never wrote that. You know what I mean? Like, (laughs) didn't even know his band. And he plastered the city. I mean, he did it, you know, by hand, walking around, plastered the city. And he said, the show was sold out. And I think there's an importance to that and just hustling. And I just felt like he, you know, he had done all of this, all of these kind of guerrilla ad campaigns. And then I became very into the, uh, 
you know, Shepherd Fairy, like Obey the Giant. I mean, he put those everywhere. Okay. You know, and I kind of took inspiration from both of those things. And then we decided the first thing we did was put potatoes everywhere. We took printouts of potatoes <laughs> and we and we plastered those canvas and they didn't say anything. And that I took directly from like the Obey the Giant thing because the Andre the Giant stickers don't really say anything, but you just see them. They right. kind of become so ubiquitous. You start to figure out like what could it be? And those were really good. And unfortunately, after we did the spray painting thing and we did end up getting in trouble for that and all this stuff, right? towards the end of college, we actually couldn't really, because you're not really allowed to do any of that stuff. We, we couldn't really do any of that stuff um, yeah. because people wouldn't know it was us, you know? And that was the problem was like people from administration started to know when we do stuff. So um, we couldn't really do it anymore. But it was really hard to do because people would definitely see, like when we we're doing the potatoes, people would be like, that is not allowed, you know? And <laughs> give us a hard time and make us take them down. So then we'd have to wait an hour until that person left and then go and put them back up again. Right. You know? So this was ours. I mean, this was across days. This was ours. There was one point for a concert, I put a, I put a poster in every single bathroom stall in every single dorm. Wow. Our goal at first was always just to play parties. And our end goal was never to play outside of Vassar in a million years. I remember when, like, <laughs> I think it was Cole Fish's and Cole Turkey said, like, we're on a bill at Arlene's Grocery in New York City. Want to come play? We were like, New York City? What? You know what I mean? <laughs> like, we just thought that if we could be, like, the best band at Vassar for, like, a time being, that that would be our end goal. Like, we could all die happy. You never thought in a million years you'd be touring the U.S., Never in a million years. Never more, in a million years. Twice or more than twice, right? It's uh, nationally we did twice. And then we've done some shorter runs. We did like a short tour up to Montreal. You know? Right, that's right. I remember. That. Um, but yeah, never in a million years. You know, it's funny. You already took care of my uh, my question. What's the worst gig you've ever played uh, with the uh, Battle of the Bands? Or at least that might not be your, the worst gig you ever played. I played worse gigs than that. Are you tons of them? You can't be serious, man. I mean, yeah, horrible. Tons yeah. of really bad stuff. You know what the fact is, though, is you you never you never grow beyond playing bad gigs. You never do. True. And and before this, I, I think it's it's in a sad way. Like right before, obviously, everything shut down because mm -hmm. of you know what's going on right now. I had almost grown so accustomed to playing kind of lackluster gigs a lot that I became to just expect that the worst in gigs was going to happen. And I feel like already I have been through so many iterations of what people would classify as bad gigs. I'd say far and wide, the two absolute worst situations where it was like, this is really bad because there's, you know, as I mentioned, there's iterations of like bad things that can happen. But by far the worst things that happened was on our second tour when we were playing San Antonio, which we expected to be this great show. Like we had predicted that out of all the shows, this one was going to be the most surefire, ton of people were going to come, whatever. Our first tour, we'd play two shows in San Antonio. Wow. Which because they asked us to play twice, like we booked a show, and then someone else said, "Can you play the show or whatever?" And we'll make you. And we were like, "But we're playing two days before. Are you sure?" Like I don't know. And they were like, "No, play." And both of them were super packed, super fun. This one we come, so we load in our stuff into this one venue, and then the promoter's like, "Well, 
because it was an outdoor stage. There's this cold front that's coming through Texas right now, which it wasn't a cold front for like New York, whatever. But I mean, like for Texas, it was chilly. You know, (laughs) I guess I agree. But the more point was that there was a house show happening closer to campus that was basically the same draw as our bill was going to be. You know what I mean? Like same kind of like crowd would come to it. And he said, but their house is closer to campus. It's indoors. And they had this um, headline of this band, Jurassic Shark. Mm-hmm. He was an LA band who was headlining. He was super good. So what we're going to do is, I did a favor for you. You guys are going to be the secret headliners and you'll play. I moved you to that bill. So go load into that house and get that going. So this is night. And this is, we're told this after we come back, back from dinner. So our stuff's loaded into this outdoor place and we're coming back from dinner after just getting into a huge fight with each other about something else. So we're just like, oh, the worst of it is over. We got into a huge fight. We're over it. Whatever. Then we get in, we're told this, lug all our stuff into this other house. We're going on late because we weren't even supposed to play this other show. So it's like 1130 by the time we go on. Set up, whatever, load in stuff. You know, it's this tiny cramped house. Five seconds into our first song, five seconds into throwing them, stop, stop, stop. Cops show up, bust the house show. And then the guys, the promoter of the house show come to us and say, we're so sorry, but you can't play. You know, you can do an acoustic set if you want. We're like, no. I mean, I don't even have an acoustic guitar on this tour or whatever. There were like about 10 people that were following us around that had come to see us play and wanted to see us play and whatever. And were, and it became this joke because they were like following venues. So a couple of those people were trying to help us and the original promoter was trying to help us. And he was like, I called this guy in town who owns a bar and he said, you can go load in there. Let's, let's just try it. So we drive to another place. It's 1 a.m. Yeah. Loading all our stuff. Everyone's breaking down. The girls are crying. Ben called his ex-girlfriend when he shouldn't have called his ex-girlfriend. Oh, no. <laughs> that was like a breakdown. So everyone's breaking down. We load into this place, fully loaded. And then they says, actually, we have a birthday party going on. Can't play. So it's 2 a.m. And we didn't get to play a show. And we loaded into three venues. Everyone had a breakdown. And then worse comes to worse. It was we had come to San Antonio from from South by Southwest. So all of these right. motels were still overpriced because San Antonio is close to Austin. So they were upcharging and we made no money that night. Right. And, um, you know, it, it sucked. And then the other like really worst gig, like this is the worst. The, the San Antonio one not getting to play is not as bad as this, which I just consider far and above the worst, which is we played this small, small, small festival not that long ago um, in the past summer that was up in near Poughkeepsie, not Poughkeepsie, like other side of the river, but upstate in the middle of nowhere. And they had this tent and we were supposed to play at night. And then they had this like rainstorm. So they delayed it. So we ended up going on really late and we were worried at first the rainstorm is going to ruin everything. We're like, everyone's going to leave because the rainstorm, like whatever. But people stayed and the band before us was the first time the whole day that the tent was filled people were into it and and they were doing covers they were doing like a half cover they were kind of a cover band they had a couple originals but we all felt personally that we were like oh yeah home run (laughs) like the we got this they are serving it up on a platter for us (laughs) you know we're gonna kill it 
And we get up there and it was like someone farted in the room. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> because it just cleared out. And nothing, oh, no. I have played, as I told you, I've played to empty rooms. I've played to one person, literally one person. I've played to five people, but nothing, nothing is like the feeling of you start playing and the room empties. Yeah. I yeah, heartbreaking. So another thing I guess I really want to talk about, new Spud Cannon material. It's been a minute since you guys have put out a new studio record, and I've seen some rumblings on Facebook. There's that video of you guys recording in the squash courts. What was the decision behind recording in the squash court? <laughs> I'm getting some like Led Zeppelin three recording John Bonham's drums in the hallway type of vibes. Was that the inspiration? Oh, you are asking me a question I have been dying to answer for anybody. I will... <laughs> well, the squash court is actually a very, is a very funny situation. So first to answer your question about new music, we are working on a new record. We are in the mixing process of it right now, and it's actually halfway done. We're really taking our time with this one. But anyways, with the, with the squash court situation, what happened was basically that, and, and a lot of people don't realize this either, but it was right before I was graduating. And it really, for a number of reasons, looked like we were going to break up. And it wasn't because of me leaving school. It just was our tour where we went to South by Southwest, to put it lightly, uh, was a disaster when we did the, net, the first national tour, we got very lucky with a lot of things. And I don't think we realized how lucky we got in just like certain perfect storms coming together, right. you know, making yeah. some of the shows good. And it had less to do with us and other things and just kind of things lining up. And I think we took those things for granted and we just expected that all, that, all those things would happen again. And on the second tour, they didn't. And we didn't put as much effort into the planning of it. And we also decided very late in the game to, to go to South by Southwest, which re, I mean, that detoured the whole tour massively. Right. Because the nightmare of that tour was not only that we misplanned it horribly and like what days to fall on was really bad. The driving was insane. I mean, we had to get from Chicago to Texas. We had basically a day and a half to get from Chicago to Texas, you know, which people do, bands do. But that was miserable. I mean, we calculated at the end of the tour, I mean, we drove close to like 7,000 miles in that tour. We had almost no off days. The way we did, I mean, the way we did lodging was, you know, if we knew someone in the city that would put us up, we'd do it. But otherwise, we'd get one room at the cheapest motel and the girls sleep three to a bed and I sleep with Ben in the other bed. Right. You're in a minivan that's like cramped with all your stuff with other people for 14 days where you don't get to go to your room at night and have alone time. You have to sleep with everyone in the same room. Someone might be a snorer. And then to make matters worse, you get up, you're eating food that sometimes isn't very good. You know what I mean? A lot of the times isn't very good. And then, and then you go and play a bad gig at night that no one shows up to, you know, or something. And then you wake up right. the next morning and you do that. Because gigs, playing good gigs is what makes touring worthwhile. 
And the other thing is touring can be so fun if you really plan things right and you allot time to go and hang out and you have rest days because our first tour was great. I mean, we'd go, we'd be able to hang out in some of these cities, like whatever. And our second tour, we didn't get to hang out at all. And it sucked. But anyways, to go back to the recording, that was a you know, detour on that. But after that tour, spirits were really, really low. And there was, a, like, I think a month where, like, we did not talk to each other after that tour. And it was also really hard, speaking of touring and being a student, was that tour took up our whole spring break. It had no break. And we came back on Sunday before the Monday school was starting. And there was no buffer. And we were exhausted. It wasn't a break. You know what I mean? We were totally exhausted. I mean, when we were on that tour, we kept asking ourselves, literally verbally, we said, can this get any worse? Can this get any worse? I'm not going into all the bad things that happened on right. tour, but, you know, but there's just so, there were so many, just so many bad things and it kept, it kept getting worse. So we were on the verge of breaking up and we had a couple of songs recorded and was going to the end. And I really didn't want to do another record. I wasn't interested in really doing it because okay. I thought we were breaking up. And the other main reason I didn't want to do a record is that I knew that I was going to have to record this one, like our first right. record, which our second record we did in studios. Mm-hmm. And our first record I recorded myself, bumbled through it, which is something at the time I wanted to do. I was very into like, I want to try recording out. The yeah. second album had absolutely drained us out. For one, it was like we kind of hated each other and then I was going to have to record it. And at first we were like, well, we'll just record it in in this Skinner room. We're not supposed to practice, but we're practicing. Right. And I remember once, and the one thing I've learned about recording that I really stand by, and it's another thing Jason told me, and mm-hmm. I did not take his advice for two albums. And then by the <laughs> third album, I said, okay he's right which is he always kind of preached this mantra of if something doesn't sound good or the way you want it to sound fix it in the room when you're recording and you're listening don't have this mantra that's like well we can fix it in post so don't worry do that and i'll edit it because the real thing about recording is you can do a lot in post like don't get me wrong but you can't, excuse me for saying this, but like you can't kind of polish a turd. You know what I mean? Right, so it's yeah. like <laughs> if it's a turd, there's only so much polishing you can do. And <laughs> that room we were practicing in when I thought we'd have to record it there sounded terrible. It didn't sound good in the room. And I remember the one practice we had where like we had talked about recording and like I started listening and I was like, this sounds bad. And I remember telling, I think I was remarking to Lucy, I was like, this doesn't sound good. We hate each other. We went on a bad tour. I'm bored. I don't want to record or like cut a conventional record because I was really like bored with the idea of doing that. And then what happened was we were trying to come up with an idea to do a final show, but we were too late in the game to book an official venue. Everyone was, everyone was booked. The mug, wherever she wasn't available, Ferry didn't want to do it. So we started thinking of where is an unconventional space we could do it. And I think I'm not the one who came up with squash cards. I think Lucy came up with it. And then to test it out, if, if we wouldn't get caught, what we did was the night before, me and Lucy took our amps and we <laughs> plugged them in in that squash court late at night with extension cords. And we just played for an hour. 
mm-hmm. just not with drums, but we played loud for an hour just to see if anyone would come. Right. And it was one of those moments, and I don't know if you've ever, you might have had this experience probably if you've ever like plugged in a guitar in a, in a new amp somewhere or something. Oh, yeah. And an E chord just sounds new. It just sounds new again. It sounds like a towering monster. And the moment I plugged in and I was like, oh my God, it, it reinvigorated me. And then suddenly I became like all consumed with it because I became like very interested in the concept of doing it. I took a long time, not, not maybe a long time, but I spent a lot of time conceptualizing how we were going to record it. Right. You know what I mean? Because it's a weird, it's, it's a weird space. You know what right. I mean? And the, they tend to, those spaces tend to be very reverberant as well. So Usually you might, reverberant. yeah, you might think it's probably not the best for recording. So the thing is for me though is that I love like I'm a huge Beach Boys fan. I'm a huge I mean Pet Sounds is like landmark album oh for God. me. Yeah. And I and I loved some people like more dry production. I really have always liked reverby stuff and that <laughs> wall of sound Phil Spector very reverby thing. But I wasn't even thinking about that beforehand. It was more just like I knew how that E chord sounded when I played it. And I just wanted to bottle that. You know what I mean? I just wanted to figure out a way how to bottle that. And what we did was, apart from the fact that we knew we were going to have to sneak in because this wasn't allowed, and in terms of how we recorded it, just to cover that, we did it over the course of, we we didn't do it in back-to-back nights. Because for one, you couldn't. Literally, you try staying up all night, like really focused, yeah. and then going back another night. I mean, it's, it's exhausting. It's <laughs> yeah. exhausting, and you're dead for like two days after that, and you're miserable. And, um, but, you know, we'd sneak in, we'd load in all the stuff, and basically what we'd do is those courts in Kenyan close at, I don't know, 10 p.m., maybe, 9 p.m., mm-hmm. 10 p.m. So what we'd do is we'd go and before, because I think it auto locks, like the, the right. doors just auto lock. So before it would go late, we'd go and prop a door with the doormat. The fr- when we first started doing it, we wouldn't prop. We'd actually go sneak in, kind of like hide till it was after 10. And right. then we'd come out from the inside with a car parked. And then we'd load all the stuff in. And the pain in the ass of it was we had to load everything in every time. You know what right. I mean? And we're talking drum sets, guitar amps, yeah, extension cords, mics, computer, interface, all this stuff, every single time. And I had to set it up every single time. Right. But the fact was, is our other albums were incredibly rushed. And our first record we did in like a week. Our second record we tracked mostly in two days, which was like really bad call. I've never do it again, but that's like what we could afford of studio time was two days. So this one, I knew for a fact, I want to give us time. There's no reason to rush. So our goal each session would only be to get one song. We'd give ourselves the whole night mm-hmm. to do one song. And sometimes we'd go for two. You know what I mean? If, we're like, yeah, we, yeah. if we got the take of the first one, and then we're like, let's go for two. But I basically, we'd, we'd load everything in. And I mean, I was very judicious about it. We had tape measures. So every single time 
the session, you know, everything was in the exact same place as right. it was. And I remember after we played that squash court concert, I was like, well, the drums can't be in the, in the court because it gets too washy. Right. It's, it's a yeah. mess. But, you know, you see in recording studios and, and live videos when they put those glass barricades around the drums. Right. Right. Yes. Yeah. And I said, there's a glass window with a door right there. Just put them on the other side of the glass. So I did that because my concept originally was I'm going to put the drums on the outside there. I'm going to have the guitar amp in the far back corner. I'm going to have the bass amp in the other corner. Mm-hmm. And then I'm going to have two, I'm going to have everything kind of close mic. And then I'm going to have two stereo room mics that are like a matching pair that I had that I got for like 150 bucks, like years before on eBay. And like you hear in stereo, you have a left ear and right ear. Right. And the squash court is marked equidistantly because it's like a sports court. So I put it on the sports line. You know what I mean? And I had yeah. them facing the guitar and the bass amp, but you still get bleed from the drums because that's coming in for whatever. Right. And the only thing I had changed from my plan, because it all worked surprisingly, we hooked it all up and we played. And I said, that is the sound. That's amazing. The only thing that I had to change was the minute that he set up on the other side of the glass, I said, it's still too reverberant. Mm-hmm. So we put um, those like gymnastics mats around the drum kit, which right. gave it some more tightness. But that was the sound, man. And it was totally that hallway, like Led Zeppelin. Like when I listened to the drums, it was just huge. It sounded huge. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. And I mean, plus it helps that Ben's playing is very bottom like yeah, too, yeah so. he's a great drummer. He's a great yeah. Drummer. yeah. So I guess just to wrap it up, what would you say is the part of being a musician that you enjoy the most doing? Like, is it playing shows, writing the songs, recording, just having a bunch of friends? I think, I think all of the above. I've always loved playing shows. I love playing shows. And I love touring, too. Like, as bad as it is, it's an unbelievable way to see America. And I feel incredibly... I'm grateful and blessed and that uh, I was, you know, able to do it, that we were able to do it. But I mean, I love writing too. And I love making records. I love making records. Mm-hmm. It's less about putting out the record and whatever. I love making records. The process of making a record to me, it's like birthing a kid. Like it's almost like while yeah. that record is being made, I can't really focus on anything else in a weird, in a weird way. And I just feel, you know, in terms of the, having friends through thick and thin. I don't know if it's so much about that because we do have a camaraderie, like we will always have this connection playing in the band. But in, in other ways, it is a working relationship too. None of us are best friends with each other. You know what I mean? Right. We're friends, but not best friends. And the one thing I'd say about it is I've always wanted the small body of work to kind of commemorate these years in a way and i felt really um the other reason that this next album i know everyone says this about whatever album they're working on but i mean this is this or the first one is definitely like my favorite of our records and the other thing that i really love about it is it was the first record we recorded at vassar we were a vassar band we recorded it right after i was graduating right as the girls were entering their senior year it's being mixed by this guy, Chris Connors, who mm. actually is a Vassar alum. Right. I remember that um, name. Yeah. So, 
I mean, it's really like a whole vaster, you know, I'm trying to make like everyone, like our album cover, which we did just finish, shot by a vaster person. Nice. And I'm going to try to get a mastering engineer that's a master person maybe too, just to make it a, <laughs> a whole effort. But, you know, I think it does, it says a lot. And especially, I mean, I'm a year out of school, obviously, but, you know, I think it is quite an accomplishment. You know, the girls can say it. They put, they made three albums while they were in college. You that's know, incredible. they made three full length albums. And I think that's a pretty, you know, unbelievable thing. And I mean, we're not going to go on forever. I mean, bands, you know, have expiration dates, but at the very least, I, I think having a trilogy of records and ones that they put out in college, very, I think, cool, cool thing. Well, it's, it's definitely something to be proud of. And you guys are one of the hardest working bands I've ever seen. So it's always a pleasure to, to talk to you, Jackson, and to hear about what you guys have got going on for the band. All the links to everything Spud Cannon related will be included in the description for the podcast. Jackson, thanks again for coming on the show. This is Alex Barnard, audio editor for The Mist, signing off. <laughs>